Ukraine's summer offensive has largely stalled. The Russians have dug in, and they aren't going anywhere. Today, I'll explain why, absent some miracle or an influx of troops from NATO, Ukraine has already lost the war. And yet, the United States and the West continue to pour resources into Ukraine, even though it's deteriorating our own stockpiles and weakening our warfighting capability. It's time to end the conflict through peace negotiations so we can focus on the real massive geopolitical threat to our interests and the free world in general, communist China. Plus, Ray Epps claims he will be charged in connection with January 6th. A Seattle public school is offering treatments that confuse and delude kids about their God-given sex. And the Secret Service is ending its investigation of the bag of cocaine found in the White House. I'm Doug Wardlow, and this is Founding Principles. It is time to go on offense. This is Founding Principles with Doug Wardlow. Biden has really made a mess of things in Ukraine. First off, the war would never have started but for Biden's weakness. The debacle he caused in Afghanistan was like a beacon to all would-be aggressors broadcasting the signal, now is the time, and Russia was listening intently. Now, over 16 months later, Ukraine is in ruins, hundreds of thousands have died or been maimed, and Ukraine has made virtually no progress in its effort to eject Russia's war machine from its soil. It is far past time for someone to end this atrocious war. And unfortunately, that person must be Joe Biden. As the supposed leader of the free world and the commander-in-chief of the U.S. military, he alone has the necessary weight to end this conflict without a massive, near-impossible, and extremely costly and deadly effort to beat Russia militarily. But ending this conflict is becoming harder by the day. The Russians are entrenched. Time is now on their side. Every week they sit on Ukrainian territory makes it harder to remove them, whether by force or by negotiated treaty. Consider this. Here is the front line in Ukraine in June of 2022. Other than some voluntary retreating in the Kharkov region in the northeast portion of the country, nothing much has changed in over a year of fighting. Yes, the Russians took Bakhmut, but the current overall strategic picture is virtually identical to the one from June of 2022. You can see that in this depiction of the front line as of last week, that is July 8th, 2023. The Russians still hold the same ground and the Ukrainians are not moving them off of it. This is what all the Western aid to Ukraine has achieved, a static front line that is starting to look more and more like a new border between nations. And that aid, particularly aid from the United States, is reaching historic levels. Consider World War II for a moment. Nazi Germany was threatening the entire planet with real, evil, authoritarian fascism. Their Japanese partners to the east were doing the same. Fighting for the life of our country and for the survival of the free world, the United States embarked on the greatest campaign to save freedom-loving people that the world has ever seen. Our military swelled to over 12 million active-duty personnel by 1945. Billions upon billions were sent overseas via lend-lease programs to fight where our armies could not. The Soviet Union, fighting a titanic land war against the Nazis, received the most aid. In 2020 dollars, that aid amounted to $180 billion over about four years. $180 billion, 2020 dollars. And that was to save the planet from Nazi subjugation. Fast forward to 2022. This time, the Russians are the aggressors, retaking what Putin and his ilk have always seen as their own territory in Ukraine. But the Russia of 2022 is not the Soviet Union. Gone are the 50,000 tanks waiting to burst through the Fulda Gap in West Germany. The Russian military of today is a shell of its former self. Their performance in Ukraine is a testament to that. Outside of its 5,900 nuclear warheads as of this year, they can't really do that much. Without using nuclear weapons, Russia is not a threat to NATO or the United States, period. They could never match NATO forces in a conventional fight, and they will not try to do so. And they will not use nuclear weapons unless they feel their existence is at stake. The risk is just too great. 
nuclear weapons prevent major powers from attacking other major powers. They don't do much when it comes to major powers attacking lesser powers, as we have seen. So unlike Nazi Germany, Russia is not a threat to conquer Europe. They are not about to invade Poland or the Baltics if they happen to win in Ukraine, because that would mean fighting U.S., British, and French troops. Not going to happen. So when you hear Pence and Lindsey Graham or Biden or, or Blinken going on about how we need to fight in Ukraine to ensure Russia does not continue rolling through other nations, you're going to sit back and laugh. How are they supposed to handle us when they can't even handle poor little Ukraine? Okay, we gave $180 billion in 2020 dollars to the Russians over four years to help defeat a real threat during World War II. They took the, those resources and fought the Nazis, pushing them all the way back to Berlin. This time around, we are giving Ukraine a similar level of support. We have given Ukraine somewhere north of $100 billion of aid in only 16 months. Biden has used his presidential drawdown authority, which allows him to send existing equipment directly from U.S. stockpiles, to aid Ukraine 40 times since the war began. The most recent was on July 7th to the tune of $800 million. In total, that's over $23 billion in existing U.S. equipment alone. Here's a list of that equipment as of May 2023. Now, that is quite a list. Just look at that. You know, 7,000 precision-guided artillery rounds, more than 14,000 know, remote anti-armor uh, systems. The, the list goes on and on. There are dozens of things on there. Uh, 30 ammunition support vehicles, 14 armored bridging systems. It, it goes on and on. Notice the 160 155 millimeter howitzers and 1.5 million 155 millimeter howitzer rounds. That number is now over 2 million rounds. Of the 109 Bradley IFVs, some 20% are confirmed to be destroyed or lost to the enemy already. 200 million small arms rounds and grenades. 200 million. Plus funding for training, maintenance, and sustainment, whatever that means. And that is where the bulk of the money is going. Fox News reported in February that we would lead the world with $196 billion in aid to Ukraine. From their article, quote, according to the Ukrainian government, the U.S. leads all countries with $196 billion in total military, financial, and humanitarian aid to Ukraine from January 24th through November 20th, 2022. Germany has sent the second most funds, with $172 billion sent in that span. And in that same span, the rest of the world combined has contributed less than $75 billion of total aid. The Council on Foreign Relations estimates that the United States has sent almost $77 billion to Ukraine through May 2023. But in tiny print at the bottom of the graphic, we have this note. Quote, aid has primarily been provided through appropriations bills. This chart only covers aid to Ukraine and so does not include all U.S. spending related to the war. And we know that U.S. Congress, the U.S. Congress approved $113 billion in aid to Ukraine with three emergency funding packages and the fiscal year 23 omnibus appropriation package. This is this according to the Committee for a Responsible Budget. Well, the exact numbers don't really matter for our purposes. What matters is that we are giving Ukraine massive amounts of aid with only marginal results on the battlefield. Meanwhile, as we drown, draw down our stockpiles and divert funding to Ukraine, our own military suffers. Listen to Biden during a CNN interview last week. Uh, the Ukrainians are running out of ammunition. Uh, the ammunition, that they, they call them 155 millimeter weapons. This is a, this is a war relating to munitions and uh, the running out of those, that ammunition, and we're low on it. And so what I finally did, took the recommendation of the Defense Department to not permanently, but to allow for in this transition period where we get more 155 weapons, these shells for the Ukrainians, to provide them with a, something that has a very low dud rate. It's about one, I think it's 150. Yes, you heard that right. He told the planet that we are low on artillery ammunition. 
That is a big, big deal. Remember those 2 million plus artillery rounds we have given to Ukraine? Well, that was our war stockpile, and now it's gone. What's more, thanks to Biden's interview, the world, specifically Russia and China, now know that it is gone. The U.S. only produces about 14,000 artillery shells a month, and we do that at two production locations. Biden and the Department of Defense have made a, a big deal about how they are ramping up production to meet Ukraine's needs and replenish our own stocks. But there is a huge problem. After all the planned production improvements, they have even talked about building a new factory, U.S. monthly artillery shell production will reach 85,000 per month by, wait for it, fiscal year 2028. So if we factor in a gradual, let's make it linear ramp up from 14,000 to 85,000 shells a month by 2028, it will take us about three and a half years to refill our stocks. And that's if we stop giving our shells away today, which we know isn't going to happen. Now, let's consider that Ukraine fires around 6,000 shells a day. And during their offensive, it is likely already increased to about 8,000 shells a day. Even after we get our production to 85,000 shells a month, we can still only cover about half of Ukraine's artillery needs by using our entire enhanced production capacity. Even after factoring in our allies and what they might contribute, it is not possible to sufficiently supply Ukraine and refill our stocks simultaneously. As the NATO General Secretary said, Ukraine's ammunition demands are many times higher than supply. In other words, NATO cannot provide Ukraine with what it needs to fight Russia for much longer. Artillery is one of the most important weapons in any ground war. If Ukraine were forced to cut its artillery support significantly, offensive operations would be impossible, and the Russians would have a much easier time finding a weak point in the line that they can exploit. Which brings us to Ukraine's vaunted summer offensive. What do you think would happen if Ukraine broke through Russian lines and made significant progress? Well, the Western media would be trumpeting this from the rooftops. Every headline would be written in massive bold letters, Russians on the run, Ukraine breaks through. That's all we would hear. Heck, Biden would probably address the nation. But that's not what we're hearing. We aren't seeing those kinds of headlines because Ukraine's summer offensive is floundering. Almost the entire legacy media has been lowering expectations and making excuses for the entire summer. Look at this from CNN. Quote, Ukraine's counteroffensive hasn't met expectations. Here's why the progress has been slow, reports CNN. I'll tell you why progress has been slow. The Russians have been fortifying their lines for months, making several lines of defense, laying hundreds of thousands of mines, and positioning reserves in key areas, and they have begun to use their air forces more effectively. Now, if you look back into history, the Russians have a good reputation when it comes to defense in depth. In the Battle of Kursk in 1943, the Russians basically gutted Hitler's panzer forces on the Eastern Front by using thick minefields and multiple fortified lines of defense. That's much like what the Russians are doing now in Ukraine. This is from a July 4th CNN article. Quote, the minefields in southern Ukraine are so dense, the troops trying to liberate the area can only advance tree by tree, one soldier involved in Kyiv's counteroffensive in the south told CNN. In all his years of service, he said he's never seen this many mines, close quote. Yes, the Russians have played this game before. They knew the offensive was coming, bolstered by Western weapons, and they planned accordingly. So Ukraine launched an offensive into numerically superior dug-in forces who knew that the Ukrainians were coming. Hmm. Well, at least the Ukrainians have air cover, right? Oh, wait, they don't. They have no real air support to call upon. None. And a ground force simply cannot conduct effective offensive operations without at least some amount of air cover. It is no surprise that the Ukrainians are making almost no progress in their summer offensive. They have advanced a few kilometers here and there, but they haven't even made it to the main Russian lines of defense. And this, despite the fact that the Russian-funded Wagner Group mercenary forces for a time turned on Russia and attempted to stage a coup. With all that Western aid Ukraine has received, and the Russians dealing with a revolt by their Wagner Group mercenary forces, well, that was Ukraine's big chance to break through. 
but it still wasn't a very good chance, and they have not succeeded. They have not broken through. The Russians are there to stay. I'm pretty sure this is what the NATO members were talking about during the closed-door portions of their summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, earlier this week. Of course, Zelensky was there. Biden actually called him Vladimir. And NATO promised Zelensky more aid. But a fast track to NATO membership for Ukraine was not on the table. Even Biden and his cronies can see that putting Ukraine in NATO right now would mean war with Russia. So they, the, they did the next best thing, essentially giving Ukraine assurances that it will begin the process of joining NATO once a ceasefire or peace agreement is reached in the war. But listen to Biden in a CNN interview just before the summit. NATO is a process that takes some time to meet all the qualifications and from democratization to a whole range of other issues. So in the meantime, though, I've spoken with Zelensky at length about this. And uh, one of the things I indicated is the United States would be ready to provide while the process was going on. And it's going to take a while while that process was going on to provide security a la the security we provide for you for Israel providing the weaponry, the need, the capacity to defend themselves if there is an agreement, if there is a ceasefire, if there is a peace agreement. And so I think we can work it out. And But I think it's premature to say, to call for a vote, you know, in now, because I, there's other qualifications that need to be met, including democratization and some of those issues. Hmm. Issues with democratization? He essentially said that Ukraine is not democratic enough to be in NATO right now. What? I thought this war was all about freedom and democracy. Biden and Lincoln have been talking for over a year about how we must support Ukraine to protect protect democracy. Now it turns out that Ukraine is short on both freedom and democracy. It's hard to say that aid to Ukraine is part of a fight for democracy when, when Ukraine suspended its elections and Zelensky has assumed authoritarian powers. Biden said the process for Ukraine to join NATO is going to be a long process in light of Ukraine's need to meet the democratization and other requirements. So how is this going to happen? The war ends somehow, and then Ukraine just starts building democratic institutions and rooting out corruption until NATO says it's good enough? And Russia, who just fought a war to bring Ukraine back under its sway, is just going to sit back and watch? Well, no. All this Ukraine in NATO business is nothing more than wishful thinking. No one should be talking about that now, as it will do nothing other than steal Russia's resolve to win the war. And now, thanks to Biden, the Russians know that our ammunition supply situation is stressed. Biden is acting aggressively while showing weakness. After the NATO summit, a reporter asked Zelensky, how long after the war would you like to join NATO? Biden answered the question for Zelensky, saying, quote, an hour and 20 minutes. And then he added, you guys ask really insightful questions. His poking Russia in the eye, telling them that Ukraine will eventually be in NATO, all while admitting, albeit indirectly, that we cannot maintain our level of support for Ukraine. Well, that's a bad combination. If we want Russia to fight harder and longer, this is the way to ensure that. Unfortunately for Ukraine, the price for Biden's weakness is steep. It was Biden's weakness that started this war. Let's not forget that Russian forces, mostly unofficial troops not in uniform, have been standing on Ukrainian soil since 2014. The Obama-Biden White House did virtually nothing about that, and the Russians stayed put for eight years, inviting further Russian aggression. The Russians made no moves during Trump's presidency. They feared him, and he was showing strength in the world stage. Enter President Biden, and within a year, 200,000 uniformed Russian troops attacked the rest of Ukraine, not already under their control. That was a risky move, but it's one that Putin had been waiting for years to make. Putin made the call in February of 2022 because of Biden's weakness, highlighted by the Afghanistan withdrawal debacle. That removed some of the risk. Now, there is no way that those Russian forces are going to be pushed out of Ukraine without actual NATO and U.S. ground forces getting into the fight. That is not going to happen, nor should it. With Trump, 
Putin likely deduced that invading Ukraine could carry far greater consequences. But with Biden and his weakness on display for all to see, the choice was much easier. Now, Putin has put Biden in a position to make a choice. Fight Russia or have Ukraine give up territory. That is the price Ukraine will likely pay for Biden's weakness, because U.S. troops won't be rooting Russians out of eastern Ukraine. Barring a miraculous event in the war, the maps have basically been redrawn already. The goal now should be to end the suffering as fast as possible. And talking about Ukraine joining NATO won't help that cause. Rather, Biden should be focusing all of his efforts into finding a diplomatic solution to this war. That means negotiation, and that means concessions. Biden will have to make Zelensky realize that he will have to give up some territory. Again, that's the price of Biden's weakness. It's the price for allowing this war to start in the first place. It's the price for having a president who undermines America's strength and position in the world. But here's the really, really bad part. The price for peace, giving up some Ukrainian territory, was known a long time ago, which means that much of the terrible suffering on the ground in Ukraine could have been avoided. The territory Ukraine must now lose was lost in the first weeks of the war. That is when the peace diplomacy should have happened. At least then, the United States could have threatened Russia with sending massive supplies of weapons to Ukraine without the Russians knowing what that would look like or how it would turn out. Now, they know that historic World War II levels of aid to Ukraine will do nothing more than keep the front line right where it is and has been for over a year and deplete our own war stocks in the process. They know that we can't keep this level of support up much longer. All they must do is sit in their trenches and hold the ground. I wonder if Putin redrew his maps the moment Biden was sworn in. Maybe he thought he'd get a little more of Ukraine than he did, but all of this after-the-fact support we have given Ukraine isn't going to change the outcome. Now it is just prolonging the inevitable and killing people in the process. That This is why the President of the United States cannot show any weakness, period. This is why America must be strong and decisive on the world stage. The murderous dictators around the world are always watching, waiting for an opportunity to strike. Biden gave them an opportunity. And now that our war stocks are low, he may have given the worst of the lot. President Xi Jinping over in communist China, another one. But don't worry, Taiwan. Biden will protect you, won't he? Well, if you like the content that we are providing, please go ahead and like the video, subscribe to our channel. If you're listening to the audio podcast, give us a five-star rating. Doing all those things helps us tremendously. Now, on to behind the headlines. First up today. According to Ray Epps's newly filed defamation lawsuit against Fox News, Epps has been informed that he will be charged in connection with the January 6th incident at the Capitol. But he hasn't been charged yet, at least not at the time of recording this. Most of you know who Mr. Epps is, but if you don't, let me refresh your memory. In the aftermath of the January 6th well, incident, you remember the most horrible day in human history where democracy literally almost ended and, you know, the worst insurrection since the Civil War, what a terrible day. Well, after that, multiple videos have been released for public consumption. Keen observers noticed something odd in a handful of them. A man, identified as Ray Epps, was seen the night before and the day of the incident telling protesters that they are going to the United States Capitol. He's also seen in one of the videos instigating folks to tear down a barricade meant to keep protesters away from the Capitol. In one of the videos, Epps tells folks that, quote, we are going to the Capitol tomorrow, to which several people around Epps reply by accusing him of being a Fed. Well, since January 6th, there have been no shortage of prosecutions of the people involved. One noticeable absence, however, has been Ray Epps. Now, Epps, through his attorneys, claims that he will be charged, but he hasn't been charged yet. And why not? If he is ultimately charged, why did it take so long? The circumstances are certainly suspicious. Another interesting note is how the media has covered Ray Epps. Remember, this is the same media that insists that January 6th is the worst day in history, a day when democracy almost died, the worst insurrection since the Civil War. Well, after Epps' defamation lawsuit and his claim that he'll be charged in connection with January 6th, the media sure have toned down that rhetoric when discussing Epps. The Washington Post is now calling the January 6th event 
a pro-Trump rally or pro-Trump rallies. ABC and Rolling Stone called uh, the incident demonstrations and protests. That's, that's quite a change of tone. Now, why would the media use such caution discussing these, discussing these events when discussing Ray Epps? And why hasn't he been charged yet? As of this time, like I said, he hasn't been charged. All interesting questions, questions to the answers to which we just don't know for sure. The legacy media and the federal government have had an inappropriate relationship as of late, whether it's censoring conservative speech or putting a lid on the Hunter Biden story or, or what have you. It's important that we investigate the total extent to which the media is in cahoots with the leftist federal bureaucracy. I suspect the legacy media may be just as much involved in active censorship of conservative views at the behest of the government as social media companies have been. That's why a federal judge in Louisiana, Justin, joined the White House and the FBI and CISA and other representatives of the federal government from talking to social media companies. They've been engaging in a massive government-coerced campaign of censorship. I would be surprised if the legacy media was not involved as well. All right. Second up today, we have a report from the Daily Wire. A Seattle public school is apparently offering free gender-affirming care at campus health centers to middle and high school students. From the report, quote, country doctor says it offers medications like estrogen, androgen blockers and testosterone, including hormone therapy for adolescents and spe uh, specialty referrals for younger patients as needed. Now, it is unclear if all of this is being offered at the campus health centers, but even if the care is simply some counselor feeding a young person's delusion that they are a member of the opposite sex, well, that's horrible, harmful insanity. Set aside for a moment the ridiculous notion that men can be women or vice versa, there is a serious problem with adults who use their professional position as a cover to corrupt children. If I send my kid to a school, I am still their parent. Crazy concept, right? Well, you'd be surprised how these leftist teachers, counselors, and doctors feel. More and more, we are seeing reports of so-called trans supporters who, in the course of their work, offer supposed support to children who may or may not be confused about what gender they are. These groomers will say that they are just offering support to children who are struggling with their gender identity. What they are actually doing is abusing children and usurping the rights of parents to direct the upbringing of their children. When a politician says, they aren't your kids, they're our kids, oppose them with everything you have. Parental rights are of utmost importance. Being a parent is a sacred duty given to us by Almighty God. It's a special relationship that requires sacrifice and patience. Most importantly, it's a job that cannot and should not be, be fulfilled by anyone else. It must not be usurped by bureaucrats or doctors or teachers or what have you. Politics is important, but everything good about society starts with strong families. So let's all rededicate ourselves to the defense of families. Let's work to, pre to protect and reassert parental rights in this country. Third and finally today, reportedly the Secret Service is ending its investigation into the bag of cocaine found in the White House. Now, many people have said, it's obvious the cocaine is Hunter Biden's. I'm not so sure it's quite that simple, folks. The entire Biden administration acts like it's pretty much unhinged all the time, so that bag could really be anyone's. What's offensive about the investigation ending without figuring out who owns the drugs is the left says Trump is above the law, but it's always the left that is never held accountable. Do you really think the White House doesn't have cameras everywhere? My goodness, go to, to a presidential speech sometime, and you'll see how seriously they take security. The White House has cameras from every angle. It doesn't take the Department of Justice to figure out who done it in this case. Give anyone the tapes in a good hour or so, and they'll be able to tell you who's, who owned that bag. The administration exhibits the worst form of hypocrisy we have seen in quite some time. It's not enough for us to just call out this hypocrisy. I'm sick of Republicans just talking about the hypocrisy on the left. It's time that we act. When we have power, we need to use it effectively against the corrupt political elite. It starts with continuing the investigation into Biden's business dealings with foreign actors. 
It starts with a full comprehensive investigation into the FBI and any other agency that colludes with leftist politics improperly. We need to dismantle the FBI and rebuild it. We need to eliminate a number of agencies entirely. But we've also got to impeach President Biden. The Democrats impeached Trump twice over absolutely nothing. Between his improper foreign relationships, the Afghanistan withdrawal disaster, and so many other disasters, the Republicans have plenty of solid justification to open up an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. The time to talk is over. It's time to act and act boldly. Well, that's all for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like the content that we are providing, please go ahead and like the video, subscribe to the channel. If you're listening to the audio podcast, give us a five-star rating. Doing each of those things helps us tremendously. It helps us grow and multiply the impact of the show. And remember one more thing, the CCP must be destroyed.